Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. This week, North Korea test-launched the Hwasong-14 missile. And what makes it different to the other 16 missile tests this year, and the dozens that have been tested over the years, is that this one is the first that could reach the United States. President Trump said this week that something must be done about North Korea. So what are the options? This week we hear from Victor Cha. He's our Korea chair at CSIS and was the U.S. deputy head of the six-party talks during the George W. Bush administration, one of the last major attempts to negotiate with North Korea. We begin by discussing the rapid development of North Korea's missile program. Um, we have to remember that only a little over five years ago, people would basically laugh every time North Korea tested a missile because it exploded um, over their heads. And uh, But really from the end of 2012 until the present, while they have had failures, they have made steady, significant progress in um, their missiles in terms of range, in terms of fuel propellant, um, uh, in terms of mobile launched, submarine launched, really just very rapid um, development, uh, advancement. Um, you know, the culmination of which was a July 4th ICBM test. So that, that, that is something we haven't seen before. Um, we've seen uh, five nuclear tests before, uh, but we've never seen an ICBM test, and so that's what makes us different. And how does that then change the calculus, say, for the United States? Um, well, the calculus is always difficult for the United States because we like to say that there's a red line, um, but the problem is that while the military option is always on the table, it's extremely costly, extremely costly. Um, <clears throat> and so what an event like this does is that it presumably removes a lot of the inhibitions to even more um, severe forms of sanctioning and reprimand that uh, countries in the region might have been more hesitant to do prior to an ICBM test. So that's, I think, where we are now, the effort by the United States, PERM-5, UN Security Council members, G20 countries, um, um, to really uh, put maximum pressure on North Korea. The UN Security Council resolution that will likely come from this is important, but what is equally important is for G20 countries or whatever, OECD countries, East Asia Summit countries, APEC countries, to enact their own bilateral sanctions on North Korea, uh, sanctioning whatever bilateral interaction exists, because that actually has the most impact. And so an ICBM test like this, the United States signaling that it's a red line, would hopefully prompt that sort of reaction from the rest of the world. How far can sanctions go at this point? I, I figured there's been so many so far. How far can, how much pressure can really be put on at this point on North Korea? A lot more. A lot more pressure can be put on. I mean, if you compare um, what is being done to North Korea to what was done to Iran before the nuclear deal in Iran, there's still a lot more that could be done with North Korea. Uh, it just didn't receive as high a priority in the past. There were always concerns about um, how it might upset the uh, China and the U.S.-China relationship, um, but uh, there's a lot more that can be done. And the thing we have to remember about sanctions is sanctions are the most maligned tool of diplomacy because everybody says sanctions don't work until they work. That is, everybody said sanctions against Iran, oh, they're not working till Iran came to the negotiating table and a deal was made. And the same thing is the case for North Korea. 
everybody will say sanctions don't work. There's lots of sanctions, and they still don't work. Um, but until uh, when North Korea comes back to the table, that's that will tell us that sanctions have worked. Uh, but no one will admit that because then they'll focus on the negotiation. So we just have to remember sanctions don't work until they do. Yeah, I've, I've been looking at the, the media coming out of Washington, front pages of some of the magazines, and you know, be forgiven for thinking that like there's it's the brink of war or something like that. Um, but what's the path then to negotiations? What's the path to getting to a more maybe mature, maybe peaceful way of resolving um, this? And what does a resolution actually look like? So there are a couple of things. The, the first I would say is that, yes, I mean, if you watch the media these days, um, um, and I'm, cer you know, I'm certain people focus on President Trump's tweets, but if you also look at the media these days, I mean, this is a story, um, and they like to make the most out of it. So there's a bit, I would say, a bit of a, uh, extravagance in some of the reporting on this um, as well, because it's good for ratings, quite frankly. But I think, you know, in the end, we're... This should where people want this ideally to go is that this package of sanctioning, whether it is uh, through the UN Security Council by China or by the U.S. against China, uh, in ways that cut off North Korea access to Chinese banks and financial institutions and U.S. dollar-denominated transactions, this will eventually bring the North Koreans back to the table where one could negotiate a freeze, and hopefully from a freeze some sort of agreement that starts to erode their capability. I mean, it's difficult to imagine just now because um, North Korea doesn't seem to be interested in any sort of negotiation, and they seem to be only interested in building long-range missiles. But there is really very little other option right now. The military option is always on the table, but um, the military option really is, I think, a last resort option. And nobody's ready to go to a last resort right now. So uh, until then, I think the focus will continue to be on UN member states, on China, uh, the United States, and others uh, to try to see if they can find a diplomatic solution. You had an, an op-ed in the, in the Washington Post this week talking about what, what China could do, um, what China should be doing. Could you explain a, a little more about that? Um, so, yeah, the basic idea is that, you know, in my experience studying this issue and being involved in the negotiations, um, what we often hear in the media is about how China wants the United States to do more to promote dialogue. And in the latest iteration, China wants the United States to end missile defense in the region and give up our military exercises to try to get a freeze of North Korea's nuclear programs. And the point of our, our essay was to say that um, you know, China's got to stop free riding. If they want to freeze on North Korea's nuclear programs, then they're the ones who have to be willing to pay for the freeze rather than trying to cherry pick things they don't like about U.S. military deployments in the region and then putting those on offer as our payment, the U.S. payment for a North Korean freeze. Um, uh, China needs to pay for a freeze. The, the United States shouldn't always be paying for a freeze. And the last two agreements the United States paid a half billion dollars to temporarily freeze North Korea's nuclear programs. It's just a personal opinion, but I don't think President Trump's going to pay a half billion dollars to freeze North Korea's nuclear programs. Um, so China has to stop free riding, and they have to start uh, uh, paying uh, if they want to be a part of this negotiation. And what would North Korea be seeking then in, in, in any negotiation 
Um, obviously, some sort of relief would be a part of it. Um, but what other what other things can we expect them to be bringing to that table? They, I mean, they're always seeking the same things, which is energy assistance, uh, political recognition, uh, non-aggression statements. They want all these things. But the most problematic thing, I think, today that has changed it from the past when I did these negotiations or uh, during the Clinton administration when the negotiations took place is that North Korea truly believes today that they are a nuclear weapons state. Uh, and they want to be recognized as such, which is completely anathema to the whole objective of the negotiation, which is to rid them of their nuclear weapons. So that you know, that's a very difficult um, part of any future negotiation. And diplomats will find a way to tippy-toe around it. You know, they'll still say, we think it's about denuclearization. So I think there are ways, um, at least politically and diplomatically, um, to, to tippy-toe around this issue. But in the end, it, if we're looking for results, um, um, it's going to be a very difficult decision for the president to, because he will have to decide whether we will accept suboptimal agreements on North Korea's nuclear weapons that are really part of it, but not all of it. Um, you know, that's what was done in Iran. That was done. What was done in India. Right now, I believe there's no mindset in Washington to do anything like that for North Korea. There will be no. Iran deal for North Korea. There will be no India deal for North Korea. Um, uh, but um, but the last resort military action uh, is just very difficult to think about at the same time. So that's why this is such a difficult issue. Yeah, I mean, I could imagine it being spun in some way for the president to look good to say, you know, no one could get a deal and I got a deal. But if it's a deal that, you know, leaves the U.S. in peril, that's that's not a good one. Yeah, I mean, I don't think... You know, uh, so I don't think President Trump has any ideological opposition to dealing with North Korea. I mean, I worked for a president, President Bush, who who did because he really despised a leader because of the human rights violations in the country. He felt like no leader should be excused from the way it treated, you know, the North Korean leader treats his, pe his people. Um, but President Trump has said, treated, you know, I'll sit down, have a hamburger with him, call them a smart cookie. Uh, these other sorts of things, which, you know, at least suggest he has no ideological opposition if there's a negotiation there to be had. And so I think that is part of the purpose of the sanctions, of pressuring China, of Ambassador, um, uh, Haley Bar H Ambassador Haley, at the, Nikki Haley at the UN, trying to push other UN member states to implement sanctions. All of that is to try to set the diplomatic negotiation table um, um, and uh, and to try to find some sort of agreement. And we turn to South Korea. They have a, a new president in President Moon. What are his priorities, and and how do those priorities then fit into uh, U.S. priorities? Um, so this is the first progressive government in over a decade in in South Korea. When we say progressive government in Korean politics, uh, some of that has to refer to domestic issues. You know, income redistribution over growth. Uh, um, um, uh, uh, more, you know, social welfare programs, but on the foreign policy side, it means generally a more lenient, lenient engagement-oriented approach towards North Korea. Um, so I think that is the inclination of this government. But at the same time, they understand, and they had, and he, the President Moon, stated very explicitly when he came and spoke at CSIS on June 30th uh, that while that is their inclination, the current situation does not permit 
that sort of open-ended engagement with North Korea. Um, and so the South Korean president says he supports sanctions right now as the way to go, and that um, in the future, if there's an opportunity for engagement, the South Koreans will be there. They'll be ready to do it. But right now, I, I don't think that they are of the mind that they should be reopening inter-Korean economic agreements when North Korea is firing ICBMs at their, their primary ally. I, they, I don't think they see that as being, as being feasible at all. So it's a little bit overblown in the press because the press sort of says the two allies are going in completely different directions. Um, the, the reality is that the, the South Korean president, although liberal, is also pragmatic uh, and knows there's a right time for everything, and now is not the right time for open-ended open -ended engagement. Finally, I mean, judging by the past behavior, it looks like this won't be the last launch uh, from North Korea. Um, so what's the right way to to react, I suppose, to that, the next one? So I, I think that's right. I mean, our, our data studies on Beyond Parallel, CSIS Beyond Parallel, show um, that North Korea... Uh, does provocations for two weeks after any U.S.-South Korean summit. Um, <clears throat> and the other thing that our data studies show is that uh, they react quite strongly to U.S. ROK military exercises, which are coming in August, um, especially when the four-week window of diplomacy prior to the start of the exercise is coded as negative or you know, the absence of any, any diplomacy. So all those things indicate that there are going to be more provocations by North Korea through, uh, through the end of the summer, uh, the be beginning of the fall. What types of provocations, we don't know. Everybody's looking and waiting for the sixth nuclear test. Uh, there could be more ICBM tests. But I think this promises a pretty tension-filled summer. Uh, and then going into the fall, we have uh, East Asia Summit. We have APEC meetings. Uh, where all the leaders of Asia and the United States will be able to get together to see if they can figure out an appropriate response to what should be a pretty hot summer around the peninsula. And that was Victor Cha bringing us to the end of this week's show. And as always, if you have any feedback on the show, please do let me know. You can find me on Twitter. You can email me at cquinn at css.org or even leave a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back with more next week. Until then, thanks for listening.